Mayo Clinic presents Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. Hello and welcome to the March Grand Rounds episode of the Always On EM podcast. My name is Venk Belamkanda. I'm one of the co-hosts of the show and thank you for joining us. This is an exciting week, particularly in the United States, as this is Medical Student and Resident Match Week. I'm recording this slightly beforehand, so I don't know what actually happens, but good luck to everyone who's in the match process, and good luck to all the residencies out there. There's been a lot of concern about the EM workforce potentially exceeding demand in 2030. If you want more on that, check out our conversation with Dr. Chris Bennett back in September. That episode is called Deserts and Reservoirs. As we try and unpack the role of emergency medicine in the future and the potential workforce needs, we felt that this Grand Rounds episode was particularly important. Dr. Laura Burke, who's an incredibly accomplished emergency physician and assistant professor of emergency medicine at Harvard Medical School, works clinically at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts, and was kind enough to give a Grand Rounds talk to our group called Emergency Physicians as the Leaders of High Value Healthcare. In her talk, she emphasizes the incredible value that our specialty brings to the community and the healthcare delivery process as a whole. If you are in need of a reminder of why we are so important to our patients, this is the episode for you. As always, please like, comment, and follow us on your favorite podcast platform, and please bring a friend with you to the next episode. We appreciate you very much, and now let's turn the floor over to Dr. Fernanda Bellolio, Professor of Emergency Medicine at Mayo Clinic, who will give the formal introduction of Dr. Burke. So it's my pleasure to introduce today's ground round speaker, Dr. Uh, Laura Burke. She's an emergency physician from Beth Israel Medical Center and an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Burke completed her medical school at the University of Massachusetts and her emergency medicine residency at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Dr. Burke has a master's in health policy and management from Harvard Chan School of Public Health and also a Zuckerman Fellowship from Harvard Kennedy School of Government from the Center of Public Leadership. I'm not making um, judge, I mean, I'm not making a fair assessment of her immense, really large CV. She also has multiple peer review publications in very impactful journals. I'm really excited to have Laura today. She will be talking about emergency physicians as the leaders of high value healthcare. And if you were able to read her, the abstract, she talks about how emergency medicine plays an important role in the healthcare delivery system in the United States, with one in five Americans visiting the emergency departments. And despite this importance in caring for acutely ill, the ED is often negatively portrayed by policymakers and the media. I'm so looking forward to this lecture. And Laura, thank you so much for coming to give Run Rounds at Mayo today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the introduction and it's such an honor to be here. Um, I don't I don't have any uh, relationships with banned companies, but um, I have grants from the Emergency Medicine Foundation. I do consulting for Emergency Medicine Policy Institute. So this is where I work, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and I've been here since I was a resident. And still frequently when I walk into a shift, I just feel such gratitude for this job to work in this field and just the excitement in walking into the ED. It really is an honor and a privilege. And yet, despite the fact that I love emergency medicine so much and just think it's the, possibly the best job that ever existed, perceptions of emergency medicine in the lay press don't always match up with my viewpoint. Headlines like unnecessary ER visits cost $47 billion a year and that avoidable ER visits are fueling healthcare costs. And more recently, that ER doctors misdiagnose patients with unusual symptoms. 
if you look at this, it doesn't necessarily do justice to the high value work that we do. But I'm going to argue in this talk that the literature, literature suggests that emergency care is high value. The healthcare delivery system is evolving and emergency medicine has been playing a key role in delivering high value healthcare. And the evidence suggests that we just don't think we're great, but patients value the work we do as well. And that the narrative really needs to catch up, catch up with what patients know and catch up with what health services research tells us. So I have two professional loves, and those are emergency medicine, as I said before, and health services research. And just like there are lots of ideas that are passed down in clinical medicine over time, some of the things we've always been taught but that eventually we find out are really true. They're not really borne out in the evidence. There is a lot of that in health policy as well. Lots of ideas that people have about healthcare delivery and how things work that just aren't actually how things go. And the literature can be used to really dispel those myths. And that's important because just like in the hospital where we interact with everybody, emergency care is really key to healthcare delivery. So people have a lot of opinions and ideas on the work we do. And it's our job to deliver high quality evidence that really represents the reality on the ground of what we do. Also, feel free to interrupt me at any time with comments and questions. I forgot to say that up front. So for these negative perceptions, policymakers are telling people to stay out of the ED to save costs. Sometimes the media doesn't portray us very favorably, but patients seem to be voting with their feet, despite the fact that they're being told some of their visits are inappropriate, that they should go elsewhere. ED visits have continued to rise. And this is important because reducing the ED visits has been largely driven by the fact that the U.S. has high health care costs. I'm sure you've all seen some version of this figure that our spending far exceeds peer nations. This is Venk. I'm going to cut in just briefly to say that throughout Dr. Burke's talk, she provides an incredible number of high quality references. And if you want those, those are listed in order of when she references them in the show notes. And one of the ideas that's been um, really uh, espoused frequently by policymakers is that high ED visits among the uninsured are driving these high healthcare costs. But I would argue that this is a myth and there's a lot of health services research to back up my viewpoint. So myth number one, excess ED use by the uninsured is driving up healthcare costs in the United States. And that's why we spend so much more than peer nations. Well, We've known this isn't true even before the Affordable Care Act. So there are multiple health services researchers in emergency medicine, and I'm gonna highlight a lot of their works. But one study in Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2000 study looked at ED visit rates. They compared how often people go to the ED in the United States and Ontario. What did they find? They actually found very similar utilization patterns. And they concluded that given that the two regions are similar, despite the fact that only one had universal health coverage, that differences in health insurance coverage may not have a substantial impact on overall utilization of emergency care. Similarly, a study by dear friends of mine who were at the Harvard School of Public Health at the time looked at OECD data, so high-income countries from 2013 to 2016, and they confirmed what we know, what we've seen in other graphs, that the U.S. spends about double what peer nations spend on healthcare. But when they looked at what drives it, they found that it was really prices. Prices of labor and goods are, were higher in the US compared to peer nations. Administrative costs were higher too. So that's a bit of a difference in the spending breakdown. 
but that overall utilization of all types of services, outpatient, inpatient, utilization rates are similar. So what they concluded is that it's really our prices and administrative costs that are driving cost differences, not the way we use care. And that includes emergency care. And I had to include this one because this is another one that's brought up frequently. The same group of researchers looked at social spending. It's often hypothesized that because we spend less on social care in the US compared to other high income countries, that's why our healthcare spending is so high. So they examined this empirically. They looked at the relationship between health spending and social spending in these same sets of high income countries. And what did they find? That the US is slightly below average on social spending when you exclude education. We're a little bit higher when included compared to peer nations. But they found that in general, countries that spent more on social services generally spend more in healthcare. And then as countries increase their social spending, their healthcare spending doesn't go down. It tends to be positively correlated. They spend more on both. Now, that's not to say social spending isn't a good thing. We know that it dramatically improves health, but we should be realistic about the impact that it has on spending. It improves lives and outcomes, but it actually doesn't lower healthcare costs. So back to the uninsured. Yet another study had summarized the literature of the uninsured in the ED. And what they found was contrary to this myth that is often proposed, there's a misperception that the uninsured use the ED more than the insured. And in fact, they use the ED at similar rates and in similar circumstance, with the exception the Medicaid population actually uses the ED more than the uninsured. And secondly, while the uninsured don't use the ED more, it's really that they use other care less because they have less access. So as a proportion of total spending, yes, the uninsured have higher ED spending. But when you look at ED visit rates, they're not going to the ED more often. So it shouldn't be all that surprising that after we had health insurance reform, that ED visits did not go down. This was stated as a way that costs would be improved after Massachusetts health reform and then subsequently national health insurance expansion under the Affordable Care Act. And this was empirically examined, a study in JAMA Network opened by uh, emergency physician health researchers demonstrated this. You can see that trend line as the ACA was implemented, 80 visits didn't go down, they continued to rise. Doesn't look like anything happened in there when you look at that graph. And that's because one, what I just said, that the uninsured don't use the ED more often, but also why would you necessarily believe that giving people health insurance would reduce ED visits? So how often do we get randomized controlled trials in health services research? It's hard, I love observational data, it's mostly what I work with, but there was a landmark study in 1971. It was a 15 year multi-million dollar study. It was the largest health policy study in US history. And it asked two important questions. If you give people medical care free of charge, does that change their utilization? How much more do they use? And what are the consequences for their health? And so this study involved thousands of individuals and families and it randomized these people to different levels of paying for their health care. And what did they find? They found that people who paid nothing for their care had the highest level of utilization of all types of services, and the more they had to pay, the less they used. So reducing people's cost burden by giving them insurance or other reductions in cost sharing, you would actually to expect them to use more care. You wouldn't expect them to use less based on this randomized design.
So ED visits have continued to rise. And again, that's not an argument against health insurance expansion. We know that it's had tremendous benefits for health and health outcomes, but what it doesn't do is reduce ED visits. And there's another reason, and this is my, my favorite one. Um, my mentor said to me, he said, you know, when you see that the, pu the public is behaving a certain way, you have to believe that they're acting in their own self-interest. Maybe they know something, those policymakers that are telling them to stay out of the ED, maybe the public knows something they don't know. And rational choice theory in economics would suggest that people behave according to their own self-interest. Like I said, people are voting with their feet because this group of people is amazing. We know when we work in the, in the ED day in and day out, we're working with talented people across all levels that are doing incredible work and patients value the work that we do. And that's why they keep coming back. But don't take my word for it. There's research, there's health services research to inform this. Um, so Jody Vogel, one of the senior emergency medicine researchers in our field was the leader of this study. And what did they do? They looked at studies that asked patients, imagine that, not just telling them what to do, but asking them what they value and why they choose to seek our services. And there were key themes when they looked at nine studies of why patients came to the ED. Acuity of condition, people come to us because they believe they're sick. Now, of course, they may not always be sick, but they believe that they have an emergency and that's why they come to the emergency department. Barriers and access to primary care. When our One of our key functions is functioning as the safety net. We're there when others aren't, when they're closed, when they won't accept their insurance. When there are barriers, we are there for the public. Advantages of the emergency department. You don't necessarily see it in the headlines, but we can do a lot of stuff across a wide range of conditions. I mean, there aren't that many things that we can't handle. And so people believe when they come to the ED that they're gonna get fulfillment of their healthcare needs. So a quote that I love from the study, the comments from the articles and themes suggest that the ED is perceived by patients as a place that will provide timely diagnoses, information, and pain control when one is unwell. We get the job done. We provide high value services and patients know this. And I believe that that's one of the reasons that they've continued to come in spite of encouragement to do the opposite. There's also another factor at play. There's this myth out there that there are large numbers of avoidable ED visits. This has been the subject of a lot of research and even more opinion. Um, so this remains important. We seem to have this debate in the policy space every few years. It just comes up over and over and over and it matters because private insurers have been um, struggling with costs just like everybody else. And, They've rightly noted that an ED visit, when you just look at the cost of the visit, costs a lot more than alternative settings. So United Healthcare put out there that an ED visit costs $2,000 compared to about 200 for urgent care and 167 for um, you know, the non-urgent care physician's office. And so a number of private insurers were actually trying to deny payment for the work that we do for patients that they retrospectively determined had visits that were unnecessary. Well, what's the problem with this? What is an avoidable ED visit? How do you define that? So some examples from Anthem, which is one of these such insurers, they base it on final diagnosis, which we will get to why that's problematic. Um, but some of these acute pharyngitis, of course, acute pharyngitis could be treated in other settings, but sometimes it's not always necessarily clear that it's not something more serious. Cellulitis, sometimes that requires hospital admission. 
allergic reaction, generally a pretty reasonable reason to use the ED. So some health services researchers in emergency medicine led by Andrew Trow at Brigham and Women's did a really elegant study using NHAMSI's, a great national data set, which is really unique and different from claims because it has a variable for chief complaint, which is what patients come to us with, not diagnoses. They come to us with symptoms and we need to figure it out. So they looked nationally for all the visits that were listed in several of these policies how many of these visits would we be denied payment? Well, 15% of ED visits would be denied payment based on this policy. But when they looked at those, they also have ESI in this data set, and nearly a quarter were triaged as urgent or emergent. So not only did the patient think it was an emergency, but a quarter of the time, an experienced charge nurse agreed with them and triaged them at a high acuity level. But moreover, acknowledging that patients don't come in with diagnoses, that's our job, they come in with chief complaints. Now these diagnoses that they say were not an emergency had the same chief complaint as nearly 90% of ED visits for the commercially insured, demonstrating why this approach is flawed. And this built on another study by just legends in emergency medicine health services research that had done this study, a similar study in JAMA in 2013, using a different algorithm that's been used to uh, define potentially avoidable or primary care treatable ED visits. Now, mind you, this whole system was designed not to deny payment for emergency care, but to improve primary care. But then it got started getting used in a, in a way that it wasn't intended. And what they found was that if you use this algorithm, the billings algorithm, 6.3% of visits would be considered unnecessary. But again, they had the same chief complaint as 90% of ED visits. 11% were triaged as an ESI 1 or 2, 12% required admission, and of those, 3.4% went directly to the OR. Those are not numbers that are helpful in terms of diverting patients away from the ED. So Seth Truger, I think most people would be familiar with our leader of emergency medicine, who's active on social media, if you still like Twitter. Um, and this is from 2018, though, the old Twitter. Uh, the prudent layperson standard is really important. This is a codified into law, and it's something that's used to make sure that insurers pay for an emergency medical encounter that meets this pr prudent layperson standard. And it's exactly what it sounds like. The definition of a medical emergency is that a normal person with an average knowledge of medicine thinks in an emergency. The patient's symptoms make it an emergency and not the final diagnosis. Neither the, patient, neither the patient nor we have a crystal ball. We don't know exactly what's wrong the moment they show up. And that's why so many people get triaged to us when they call these information hotlines. So to hammer home this point, because a lot of this literature existed, yet these policies were still cropping up, and advocacy in the emergency medicine community was needed to make sure that they didn't persist because they're harmful to our specialty, but more importantly, they're harmful to patients for making very rational decisions. So an emergency physician asked those of us on the front lines who are on social media to give some examples of seemingly innocuous problems that ended up being something disastrous. So examples, we've all seen this. Who hasn't seen someone who started off in fast track then ended up in critical care with Ludwig's? Toe pain, aortic dissection, Foley change, Fournier's gangrene, sleepy at dinner, PCO2 of 154, 
gas from White Castle, ruptured ectopic. These are all examples of how the chief complaint can very frequently uh, not match up with what you encounter in the end. And I think we've all seen this. Thankfully, um, government agencies are taking a look at this research, and that's why it's so important. The Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation summarized the literature, and their points were spot on. This, this report is incredible. Um, so they note that ED, inappropriate ED visits are challenging to define either for patients at the time of the encounter or researchers after the fact using data sets. There's a lack of consensus in their literature, which basically makes it really difficult to study and even harder to reach conclusions about how to reduce them. And they also note that many people have tried to reduce EDUs. They've done things like higher insurance co-payments for EDUs. So go back to that RAND study. We know that that reduces utilization. That is a way that can reduce utilization. Patient education, expanding access to primary care, always a good thing. And focusing on super utilizers or hotspots to see if you can just focus on these high user groups and how effective have those been in general pretty modest this the the office noted that they do not seem to have had widespread or sizable impacts on ed use and in fact in a number of circumstances they can have unintended negative consequences and we live this during the covid COVID-19 pandemic, I mean, we're still living it, but that early pandemic where people were afraid to come to the ED, ED visits dropped dramatically. The financial impact on our specialty was vast, but more importantly than that, there were harms for patients. So lots of patients avoided care for non-COVID related emergencies, and that led to harm. So um, this study in the middle here, the decline in stroke alerts, that was a multi-center study that found that stroke alerts went down, but the mean NIH stroke score was actually up. People were waiting until they were a lot sicker to come in, suggesting that less severe patients were staying home. And there's some evidence that that has led to excess mortality. When people don't come to the ED when they should, it has adverse impacts on patient outcomes. But Hear me out. Let's just say you could effectively keep low acuity patients out of the ED. Would this be effective in lowering healthcare spending? It's just presumed that it does. But what does the literature show? Another randomized controlled trial in health services research. So exciting. Um, they did an uninsured, a randomized controlled trial of uninsured low income adults in Virginia. And similar to the RAND study, they had a control group that was basically didn't get any kind of education or intervention. And then they had three levels of incentives. So one was, I guess, not really an incentive, just an encouragement to use primary care. And then the other two groups had a small monetary incentive to visit their PCP. And they had some modest reduction in ED use. They had an increase in other outpatient use. Obviously, you need to get that care somewhere else, if not in the ED. But they found no reduction in overall costs. Well, why might that be? Because it costs money to provide the care elsewhere. It costs money to expand access to primary care and to provide that care outside of the ED. So yes, you reduce ED spending, but you got to make up for it somewhere else. And on average, it actually didn't lead to a reduction in total spending, suggesting that we actually are pretty efficient in the work that we do. Another study, comprehensive primary care practice, 502 primary care practices across the country. 
They improved care management for high-risk patients. Fantastic. Enhanced access, improved care transitions, all great things for patients. The demonstration practices slowed their growth in ED visits, because as you know, ED visits are going up. It was less in the demonstration practices, but it did not reduce Medicare spending for the same reason. Even when they can reduce ED visits, it didn't save any money. So what are the policy implications? Reducing ED visits is hard. It may not actually save money. Some efforts cause harm. So is this really where we should be focusing? Well, some health services researcher, actually Suhas Gandhi was a, um, a medical student rotating with us. I was like, why is this name so familiar? Oh, this is one of my favorite papers. Um, but a primary care physician and health services researcher, they asked the same question. Can you save the system money by increasing spending on primary care? They note that these efforts are well-intentioned and they're good for patients. Good things cost money, but the idea that they will necessarily lower spending lacks strong empirical evidence. So it's important to understand the rationale that we do these things to help people, but expecting them to necessarily yield savings may lead us to inappropriately conclude that they're not effective. What about urgent care? So a lot of these studies predated the growth in urgent care. So, you know, when I graduated residency, there was some urgent care, but not a lot. And then our group started opening urgent cares as well. There really was an explosion. Surely that saves money in ED visits, right? Well, that is certainly what was predicted. Um, a group of researchers estimated that be around between 14 and 27% of ED visits could be avoided if only these folks went to urgent care and you could save $4.4 billion annually. But what actually happened? Well, kudos to um, Ativ Maroch is a fantastic researcher and studied this with emergency physician Ari Friedman. And they asked the question, well, what happened using a large national data set? And they found that for every ED visit avoided, there were 37 more urgent care visits. So you, for each $1,600 ED visit prevented, you had $6,000 in urgent care spending. So that while ED care, when you compare an ED visit to an urgent care visit, the price is 10 times higher, the growth in urgent care has not saved money it's increased spending. So another myth that has prevailed around emergency medicine, that the cost per visit that has risen over time is driven primarily by upcoding. More headlines, ER spending rises with the increasing price and severity of visits, and that hospitals are grabbing a billion dollars in extra fees for emergency room visits, and that as Medicare bills rise as records turn electronic. There's been a lot of focus on upcoding, and the level of care that we bill certainly matters for costs. These higher severity visits, uh, these evaluation and management codes that's assigned to every one of our ED visits um, determines how much we get paid for these visits. So there's certainly a financial incentive to code at a higher level. And most of us get education on this to make sure that we're appropriately coding. Now, of course, it's all changing, um, but, the idea is still the same, that higher level of visits yield higher um, reimbursements. And so reimbursements have been going up over time, but many policymakers have been implying that this increase in reimbursement is driven not by the change in the care we're providing, but just the way we're coding these visits. Yet there are studies suggesting that perhaps that may not be the case. Perhaps our care practice has changed. 
we were fortunate to work on a study that showed in just a short time period, there was a pretty dramatic increase in billing at that highest level. Why might that be? We all know what happens in the ED. Patients come to us, we do our evaluation, testing and treatment, and then we have to make a dispo. And for the most part, this is an oversimplification, people either get admitted or they go home. And why does this matter? Well, of course it matters for outcomes. We wanna get it right. We don't wanna send patients home if they're going to get sicker, but it also matters for costs. That decision we make multiple times a shift determines whether or not that visit is going to be a $9,000 encounter or a $1,000 one. So making efficient decisions has big implications for healthcare costs. We also know that healthcare delivery is evolving, that basically hospitals have moved more and more towards outpatient management. Rates of hospital admissions per population have been declining over time. People are just staying in the inpatient setting less often. And concomitantly, more and more admissions have come through the ED. Decades ago, if you need to be admitted to the hospital, you didn't necessarily show up at the ED first, but now that's true for the vast majority of admissions. So how are these trends related? Could we be part of the reason why hospitalizations are declining? Well, in our study looking at trends in emergency care, we looked at the number of services being provided per visit for Medicare beneficiaries. And we found that the number of tests, treatments, advanced imaging was going up over time. And that this counted for about 40% of the rise in billing for these high severity visits that pay more. So certainly a reasonable percentage was explained by what, what we could observe on claims. How much of it is the remaining is simply changes in coding, we don't know, but certainly upcoding is not a driver of the entire trend. And others have done similar work using all payers and have found similar results that the intensity of the care that we're providing has increased over time, not just as we bill it, but what we're actually doing in the ED. And it's worth noting that the upcoding concern, it's certainly important to understand um, how much of this is a true change versus what we see on paper. Um, it's not unique to emergency medicine. Other specialties are experiencing this as well. So it's something that should be addressed collectively in medicine and not only attributed to the ED. So it seems that perhaps reducing ED visits is not a key way to save money. Uh, that is a, hasn't borne out in terms of being a good cost-saving measures. But what is a way that we can improve efficiency of care via our work? My colleague and mentor, Peter Smolowitz and colleagues, basically uh, created an editorial about this and hypothesized that we should stop focusing on low acuity conditions for all the reasons I mentioned, because we're always going to need the standby capacity of the ED. And so you think about the COVID pandemic as an example, we needed to be there. We needed to be there for those sick COVID patients. And um, we had plenty of capacity to take care of low acuity patients. Um, we're always going to keep need to keep the lights on a certain number of nurses so the cost of taking care of a few sore throats is, is not that big of a deal the standby capacity of the ed will always be needed but we can actually reduce costs instead by focusing on reducing admissions we can turn that nine thousand dollar event into a one thousand dollar one for certain carefully selected patients if we focus on improving care and this is important um, because, so I went to Academy Health, it's a National Health Services Research Conference annually and emergency physicians are growing in presence at this. I hope you'll join me sometime. 
Um, and I saw this poster as I was working on a study looking at average emergency room costs. And I first got a little fired up because uh, they looked at many years of data and didn't adjust for inflation at all. But then was also asking about, well, what do you mean by an emergency room visit? And this is something that comes up a lot in the literature. They're only talking about outpatient visits a lot of the time. Well, why is this important? Because trends in dispo are changing over time. As more and more patients are managed as an outpatient, those patients who used to be admitted for three days that now we're taking care of over a few hours or an obstay are predictably more complex and they're more expensive. You can't get something for nothing. That spending has to go somewhere. So accounting for those trends in disposition is important. So we worked on a study to address this myth that ED visits are costly and inherently low value by asking the question, how have costs of care changed over time? We use Medicare data because of the unique advantages of this data set, which I'll describe. And we looked at total cost of care. This is the benefit. Um, we could look not just at ED costs, but all the downstream spending. If they went to rehab, if they went to the doctor's office, we could look at their total cost of care. And this is not a novel idea. Lots of people have been studying bundled payments, episodes of care, but it's been less often applied to the ED or recognize the way that we can be important moderators of overall costs. But we looked at it and we examined the definition of an ED visit. You, We all know that we don't just take care of the patients we send home, we take care of all the patients that get sent to us and whether or not they go home is largely a function of our decision-making. So we didn't just look at patients we sent home, we looked at all ED visits. And so we looked at total costs at 30 and 90 days. We looked at the spending on the index visit. And what we did was, if the patient was admitted, we attributed the cost of that admission to the emergency physician, to that index visit. And then we looked at all the spending after they left the hospital, either on office visits, subsequent ED visits, readmissions, or rehab. And what did we find? We found that consistent what we know about healthcare trends, inpatient and facility costs are going down. That index visit cost went down because we admitted fewer patients. We took a $9,000 visit and we made it into closer to $1,000 one. Fewer patients were going to rehab, fewer patients were readmitted. And yes, if you just look at individual ED costs at $5, that's going up a little bit over more time, but it's more than dwarfed by those reductions by the increased efficiency of the work we've done. And that's led to increased savings over time. So the mean 30-day cost of an ED episode in this population declined from 8,800 in 2011 to 8,100 in 2016. And we adjust for ways the, the patient populations differed as well. And so to just demonstrate this idea of an index ED visit. So if you just look at that, you know, burnt orange share, the 0.56 to 0.60, those are the patients we sent home. That level went up. So when you look at that Healthcare Cost Institute, they're just looking at the patients we sent home. But if you look at everybody, because we're having shifting across these categories from a more expensive category to a less expensive one, total spending nationally declined from 8 billion to 7.4 billion. Our practices are saving the system money in ways that have not been traditionally recognized. 
So what we concluded is that higher upfront spending in the ED may be associated with lower total spending for Medicare. We actually may be providing more efficient care. And again, this is not a novel concept. It's been demonstrated in multiple other disciplines and studies and advocating that in emergency care is important to make sure the value of the care we provide is recognized. So in conclusion for this, trends in the cost of individual ED visits, if you're just looking at outpatient may obscure the bigger picture. Now there are certainly limitations. Our study only looked at Medicare and we know that Medicare reimburses at a lower rate compared to commercial insurance, but it's higher relative to Medicaid and certainly the uninsured. And we didn't look at out-of-pocket costs to consumers. We know that for Medicare, from uh, traditional Medicare, that patients pay more for outpatient services, whereas inpatient services are covered. So whether or not this represented an increased financial hardship for patients was not something we looked at, but certainly is important for a future study. So the limitation in terms of Medicare, Michelle Lynn, my friend and colleague, did a really important study in JAMA Internal Medicine where she looked at ED admission rates across payers and she found a similar trend that ED admission rates are declining. And given that this was an all-payer study, it suggests that this phenomenon that we may be saving overall costs is likely generalizable to other payers as well. So another topic that has come up and that I think is really important to think about is thinking about reimbursement of emergency medicine compared to other specialties. This is another thing that's been in the debate um, in discussion of out-of-network billing, which is important for emergency physicians to tackle to protect our patients from financial catastrophe. But a number of those in the healthcare economics community were talking about when you look just at privately insured patients, when you compare what we're paid for a privately insured patient compared to Medicare as a reference standard, Emergency physicians have a higher multiple of Medicare. The amount they're paid for commercially insured patients is on average 266% of what they're paid for Medicare, whereas ortho was 178% and internists were 158%. Now, um, this was being used as a rationale to try and limit payment to emergency medicine. But I thought an important point that was missing from this conversation was the fact that the commercially insured represent less than a third of our patient population. Um, we don't take care of primarily commercially insured patients. They're a minority of the patients we're taking care of, and that fraction has declined over time, that light or that dark green arrow. Um, all other payers are going up, the commercially insured are going down. And that's because we are required by law to see everyone. And that's one of the beautiful aspects of our specialty and why I love emergency medicine. So I don't have to think about that. I take care of everybody. It's important and it's an important safety net feature of our system, but it's unique to us. And it should be recognized when we're considering the impact of payment policies on the financial viability of our specialty. So I thought this is nicely illustrated by my colleague, Peter Smolowitz, um, devised the study idea to look at the impact of a Medicare for all payment policy on reimbursement for emergency care. And we didn't know what we would find. Um, and what we found was if you apply Medicare payment rates to all ED visits, in general, the net reimbursement was similar or went up because while you would make less on privately insured patients, you would have a higher reimbursement for Medicaid and the uninsured, of which we have a disproportionate share. So on average across the country, a single payer policy may not be as financially um, 
detrimental to emergency medicine as otherwise would be predicted. Now, of course, it's going to vary by hospital case mix, but I think it demonstrates the fact that when we talk about reimbursement for the commercially insured, recognizing that we also have a higher share of vulnerable populations as well. So I've talked a lot about cost, but value isn't just about cost, it's also about quality. What we do matters, and we know that there can be adverse outcomes in emergency care. And every year at SAM and reading Annals of Emergency Medicine, you see all the great work that our field is doing to improve the care we provide and improve outcomes. But we know that there's still work to be done uh, to limit variation and limit the worst and feared outcome is that people might die after we go they we discharge them. We set to look at how this has changed over time as intensity of care has increased and we're sending more patients home. You might hypothesize that perhaps it's not a good thing to send more patients home over time. What does that mean for outcomes? Or maybe we're efficiently selecting patients to be able to receive care at home. And we also looked at trends in another outcome, healthy days at home, which we adapted to include a 30 day time window. So we actually published this before the cost study, but we looked at trends in mortality for all Medicare beneficiaries. And we did this for everyone presenting to the ED, regardless of DISPO. But my colleagues convinced me, um, I give them a hard time about this because I was working with mostly internists on this project. They're like, well, why would you look at people you admitted? Isn't that about what we do? I'm like, no. <laughs> Uh, the fact that we make the correct diagnosis, provide excellent sepsis and stroke care in the emergency department, and finding the right service to admit them and making the correct disposition decision often plays a role. Certainly our hospitalists and admitting colleagues are important, but you can't deny that we have a key impact on outcomes as well. So I thought, and similarly, we know that there's a change in who are who is in each of these categories over time. I felt that the most important was to look at ED visits in aggregate, but they convinced me to look stratified as well, which I think was a good suggestion. We looked at mortality at 30 days, and some have argued that's too far out for an ED visit, but we chose that as the primary outcome because that's what's used in most um, national quality reporting efforts. But we looked on the day of the ED visit, day zero, and at one and two weeks. And we did all sorts of models adjusting for patient and hospital characteristics and chronic conditions, but overall our results were similar. That 30-day mortality improved over time, that thick orange line, showed that 30-day mortality adjusted for all the variables that I mentioned declined by 5.7% to 4.4% from 2009 to 2016. This was true for all visits in aggregate, but also when we looked at those who were admitted, those who were discharged, and those who were in observation. And then we looked stratified by patient severity, and we found that the effect size was greatest for the sickest patients. So those patients for whom we have guidelines and really increased focus, but lower severity patients saw benefits as well. The work that we're doing seems to have result in improvements across the board. So in summary for the quality of care we provide, EDs tend to be discharging more patients, but mortality rates have actually improved and this was greatest among the sickest patients. I'll briefly go over uh, healthy days at home. Um, so this is an outcome we were fortunate to work with the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission and mortality is only one outcome and it's a blunt but important outcome, but others have started to use facility days. So if we can keep patients 
out of facility-based settings without leading to an increase in mortality, that would really be ideal. And there have been studies linking these outcomes with functional status. So adapting that measure to 30 days from the ED, we similarly looked at trends in 30-day healthy days at home over time. And what do we find? We found improvements, as we would expect. We're sending more patients home, they're dying less often, and they're spending more time out of facility-based healthcare settings. And similar to what we observed in the cost study, it's because of the decline in mortality, but also the decline in time spent in facility-based settings in favor of outpatient ones. So in summary of all of this, emergency care has become more intense, and we know that rates of hospital admission have fallen, but that's leading to improvements in outcomes, and it seems to be lower total cost of care, suggesting that value is improving both on the cost and quality fronts. So the historical view of emergency medicine is that it's an outcome to be avoided. This is what we're policymakers often talk about. We wanna give people health insurance so we could keep them out of the ED. If only we could fix primary and preventive care, emergency care won't be needed. We know that that's not right. Emergency care will always be needed, especially as where advances in medical science are keeping patients alive longer, um, allowing people to live with chronic conditions rather than dying prematurely, the ED will be there for them when they have an acute exacerbation. There's this idea that the ED is costly, and certainly we need to be good stewards of healthcare costs and protect our patients from financial ruin. And there's also this idea that emergency care is low value, but we know that patients are voting with their feet. They're still coming to us because we're providing high value care an alternate view of emergency medicine that is based in empiric health services literature. We have an important role to play in the era of value, both improving outcomes and improving costs. We're accessible. Um, we disproportionately take care of individuals who can't be seen in other settings, either because they lack um, you know, the ideal insurance, staff workers' offices won't take them, um, they may have other barriers to outpatient care. We offer a broad spectrum of services, so the path forward should be to focus on access, quality, and efficiency. Why? Because it improves outcomes. And recognize that emergency care is essential to this. And rather than thinking about how we can keep people out of the ED, think about how we can make the ED work better for our patients primarily, but also for the healthcare workforce that has really been burdened during this pandemic and this crushing wave of boarding. We shouldn't punish people for using the ED. We should give them access to improve care for them, to improve their lives and outcomes, but make sure that when they decide to use it, that we respect that and understand a lot of the time it is a rational decision based on the information available to them at the time. That's not to say that we don't have a lot of challenges that we still need to overcome crowding. I mean, I didn't get into the myth of crowding. It's I still find it disheartening when I find even people within our community blame ED crowding on inappropriate utilization. We know that the driver of ED crowding is boarding. And in the past, it may have been lack of physical beds, but increasingly it's due to lack of staffing for those beds. But no matter what, it's this lack of inpatient space that drives ED crowding. So if we can shift the narrative again away from inappropriate utilization towards fixing the healthcare system to have the necessary capacity to support the emergency care system and have surge capacity for times of crisis, like what we're observing now in our delivery system, 
that's the way forward. And that's what the evidence tells us. We know that we have workforce issues. We know that there are still affordability issues. And while I've talked about the value of the care we provide, it's imperative for us to make sure that we're good stewards of resources and that our patients aren't subjected to financial ruin for coming to see us. But I think we can do all this. I know we can because this is an incredibly bright community and we have a unique skill set. We're generalists. I actually saw this article in Forbes and it was about business, but it really resonated with me and reminded me of our specialty. All knowledge builds on itself. The generalist takes his suitcase or her suitcase packed full of wide ranging experience with him wherever he goes, offering companies a tremendous amount of value. Generalists have a more diverse collection of knowledge to draw from so they can see connections and correlations that specialists might miss. Generalists are the conductors that lead the orchestra. I think that's true in the hospital. We have such a wide range of expertise that we can handle a wide range of situations. But also in health services research, we know how the delivery system is built. We see a lot of the challenges and we're well positioned to make improvements. I think the future of our specialty is bright and I'm looking forward to working with you in and outside of the ED on these um, important topics going forward. And I thank you for your time and attention. Thank you very much, Dr. Burke. And thank you all for listening to our show as well. We hope that you found this to be a motivating and helpful reminder of how we provide an important service to our patients and to the healthcare system as a whole. Please take a minute, if you haven't already, to like, comment, and follow us on your platform of choosing. It really helps to connect our show with the listeners who might be looking for this type of content. Also, come back on April 1st when we release our next chapter. And until then, be safe, be well, and thank you very much. The Always On EM Podcast. Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. 